So our scripture for today is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lauren. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody. All of you. Um, yeah. When I woke up this morning, there was a nice sunset. It sounds like it might be raining right now. Um, but uh, it was a perfect uh, illustration for me in the sermon that you're about to hear uh, on beauty. And uh, was a, another illustration to me how beauty can be so fleeting. I was also looking at pictures last night of when I was young, uh, when I was first married. It was also another reminder how beauty can be fleeting. Um, so take that for what it is. When I walked in this, this morning and, and saw this, this mess, I was reminded that like, now th- you know, this is kind of a, a junky place, but it reminded me of a conversation of, uh, it's going to be beautiful. I'm sorry, I, I mean, this is recorded. We love CIS. This is a great facility. And, uh, but it was reminded me of a conversation I had with some friends of mine uh, in Europe. We used to live in Europe who um, told me that there was a, a study that was done recently of European millennials uh, who've come to faith in Jesus. And one-third of them, that's a huge number, uh, one-third of them said that they were prompted to pursue faith in Christ because they walked into a cathedral and they saw that it was beautiful. Um, and there was something about the beauty of the cathedral that drew their eyes upward and, and caused them to say, there must be something to this because it's like, unlike any other place in the world to them. Um, and that's no surprise to me and it's probably no surprise to you because we're all uh, beauty junkies. We're created to crave beauty. You know, you go to Target, there's endless aisles of beauty supplies right at the front. Um, and it's the same reason we go to national parks to stand and just like be in the presence of something 
beautiful. It's the reason we go on cruises, you know, sandals, paradise cruise, to put ourselves in a beautiful place uh, among beautiful people because we're obsessed with beauty. My wife was watching Project Runway last night. That's why shows like that are popular. Were you doing that too? I see a big smile. Uh, Fixer Upper, you know, we're, we're fixated on beauty. We're attracted to it and compelled by beauty. And so uh, last week we started a sermon series on enjoying God. And, and Jeremy did a great job of showing us how God is Trinity and how we can enjoy Father, Son, and Spirit. And this week we're going to look at God most beautiful. And as we do that, I want you to ask yourself the question, why, if beauty is so important to us, who we are as created human beings in the image of God, why is it so fleeting? Have you ever thought about that? Like, we crave it so much. So why is it so fleeting? Again, like when I woke up, the sunrise, five minutes later, it's gone, and it's gray. I try to buy flowers for my wife at least once a month because I've grown to love flower arrangements. I didn't like them because I was like, oh, they just die. Um, But there's something beautiful about a flower that's unlike anything else in the world. But again, it, it dies. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So the flowers are teaching us something about the word of the Lord. I used to trash talk my dad for being bald. I used to just give it to him so hard on the basketball court. Uh, And Isaiah 46, 4 says, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, says the Lord. Uh, I am he who will sustain you. I made you and I will carry you. Um, I don't even have hair to be gray now. And so it's just, it's just a reminder uh, that even in old age, as we get old, there's an element that is teaching us about God, that beauty is fleeting. And those are just a few examples of my life. You may have some examples of beauty that sort of captured your imagination or uh, enthralled you that proved fleeting. And I just wanted to point your attention to that because every created beauty was created by God to lead you to God. That's why God made beauty so fleeting, right? It's a gift, but it's, it's fleeting. It's a gift from God that's intended to guide you back to God. Beauty leads to wonder, which leads to worship. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Beauty is designed to lead you to worship, right? Every little beauty, no matter how small, from flowers, sunrises, that new car smell, freshly baked cookies, newborn babies, laughter, every little beauty is intended to be a little breadcrumb that leads you back to Jesus. And we see that in Psalm 27. I want to do that by looking at a few things here. The first thing I want to show you is the priority of beauty in your life. The priority of beauty. Look with me. Uh, Right off the bat, we see it at the beginning of this psalm that David's got a problem. There's a predicament that he's in that even though he lives in a world drenched in beauty psalm 27 says david's living in the day of trouble verse 5 he's living in the day of trouble and we see that in verses 2 and 3 we get a sense of what david's facing as he's writing this psalm he speaks of the wicked who advance against him verse 2 
Their ravenous desire is to devour him. Again, verse 2. He speaks of enemies and foes who sought every opportunity to destroy his reputation. And then he says in verse 3 that he envisions an army of enemies that are sort of surrounding him, besieging him. There's war rising up to undermine his achievements. And that reference to army and war doesn't have to be taken literally, but what it is there to show us and is designed to convey that no matter how great a threat the danger may be to us, as it was to David, his confidence, it says in verse 3, never wavered. Have you ever been in a place where you felt like there were just numerous things stacked against you, working against you, surrounding you? Verse 10, 11, and 12, we see David isn't just surrounded from external circumstances. He's got stuff going on on the inside as well. It says his mother and father are forsaking him or may forsake him, and liars are spreading malicious lies against him. That does something to you internally as well when that sort of thing is happening. Yet in the midst of all these factors, David says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So if distress and trouble are as darkness, the Lord is light. And if trial and tribulation are an army, the Lord is David's fortress. And what's even more incredible is his underlying devotion underneath all of that. The reason he can say all of that is because he's seen the beauty of the Lord and his one thing is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Verse 4, he says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's identity, he's the king of Israel, the most powerful person in the world at this time. But his identity is not wrapped up in being the king. He didn't want to wake up each day with a political agenda driving him where he should go or a scheme for how to expand the borders of his empire. David's one thing was to find a way to break free from the daily distractions of life so that he might dwell in the presence of God. David said, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord is his one thing. That's his priority. It's not just a passing glance at God's direction once a week on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Notice in verse 4, it's important how it starts in the past tense. David says, I have asked. And it's combined with the future tense, I will seek. David's passionate craving for God extends out of the past and into the future, which means that his one thing is his forever one thing. It's out of the past and into the future. It's his whole life is consumed by this craving to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so David's life's full of problems. His one priority, though, is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And Jesus told his disciples in John 16, in this world, you're going to have trouble. David says, in my day of trouble, I'm going to set my gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And as I've been thinking about it this week, I'm always 
in the hunt for a good illustration, and I watch a lot of movies. Um, I love a good movie. I love bad movies, too, um, I, but I, I love a good movie. And so a good movie, to me, is like Shawshank Redemption. So you're going to get a Shawshank Redemption illustration right here. Anybody seen Shawshank? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. We got, we got good people here. Uh, one of the most beautiful scenes in that movie, which is one of the best movies, in my opinion, is the opera scene. If you've seen Shawshank Redemption, it's about this man, Andy Dufresne, who finds himself in prison, and he's kind of button heads with the prison warden. And what he does, he goes into the prison warden's office, and he finds this vinyl, and he, and he picks it up, and it's this, it's this Mozart aria, and he plays this opera over the prison's loudspeaker from the warden's office. He, after he snuck in there and the guard's in the bathroom, he locks the guard in the bathroom, and then he locks the warden's door so that nobody can stop him from doing what he's about to do. And he puts the needle on the vinyl, and he presses uh, the button on the microphone, and all of a sudden there's just this beautiful music just playing all throughout uh, the prison, and, and it, it's scanning sort of the prison yard, and you're seeing all these drab, gray prisoners in this gray, nasty prison, and all of a sudden, as soon as they hear the music, their eyes are lifted upward. They're captivated. Their gaze is captivated upward, and, and the music is echoing through the prison, and it's out in the yard, and the beauty of the voices transforms what is otherwise a pretty nasty situation, pretty nasty setting, and it goes on for about 90 seconds, and you just see all these guys just like smiles lighten up, and then all of a sudden, Red, who's Morgan Freeman, begins narrating, and he says this, he says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like something, some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. It's, it's an incredible scene. Beauty brought perspective in Shawshank. And in the day of trouble, it brought perspective for David. If you want to enjoy God, you've got to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And it has to be your priority. That's beauty's priority. Now, the second point is beauty's purpose. What's the purpose of, of beauty? We know that we should gaze upon it, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But beauty's purpose, we see in verses 4, 5, and 6, is to lead us to worship. Here's how beauty works, okay? Beauty is a gift and a guide. Beauty is both a gift and a guide. It's a gift in that it's meant to be enjoyed. God isn't displeased when you enjoy something beautiful. Some people would say that he is. They act as if he is, but God loves it when you enjoy a good steak. He loves it when you have good marital intimacy. He loves a good football game. He loves cozy fire and cocoa and a good dad joke, right? Speaking of which, he said, oh no. <laughs> Why did the old man fall in the well? Because he couldn't see that well. Sorry, that's, uh, 
That's a dad joke. God loves dad jokes, okay? He does, he does. Sorry. You can laugh, it's okay. You can laugh at me. God enjoys it when you laugh at me. That's, this is the point here. When we enjoy God's good gifts, he's not up in heaven frowning on us. He's not saying, no, no, don't do that. You should only enjoy me. Don't enjoy that, enjoy me. That would be as foreign to God's nature as a good heavenly father as it would be for me to be angry at my kids uh, if I gave them a gift and then started pouting because they enjoyed it too much. I want my kids to enjoy the gifts I give them. It brings me joy to see them enjoy and take pleasure in the things that I give them. I'd be disappointed if they didn't enjoy what I gave them. Their pleasure in the gift that I give them draws them closer to me. I love that they love that gift. Enjoying God's gifts with a grateful heart draws us closer to God. And that's how beauty is our guide. It's our gift that we enjoy, but also it's our guide because it leads us from enjoyment to worshiping the giver. We all know that the journey from enjoying the gift to worshiping the giver doesn't always happen though, right? Sometimes we just stop at enjoying the gift. Romans 1 tells us, familiar passage, describes for us the disconnect that we all have between God and his created gifts. It says this in verse 20 of chapter 1. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor nor gave thanks to him. So they were aware of God by what he had made, but the, the problem was they failed to give him honor. We failed to give him honor, and we failed to give God thanks for his good gifts. Enjoying the simple, ordinary blessings of life requires us to see those simple, ordinary blessings as gifts from God. For something to be a gift, I have to see it as a gift, because I don't deserve it. If I deserved it, then I would thank myself. I grew up watching The Simpsons, and I burned into my mind as a scene of the family around the dinner table, and Bart is asked to pray for the dinner, uh, as good parents often will ask their children to pray. You're trying to teach them to pray. Uh, not that Homer Simpson was the greatest example of how to pray, but he says, he tells Bart, pray for the food or whatever. And Bart says, dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Uh, and that's, ex- that's essentially what happens when we short circuit enjoying the gift of God, but not acknowledging that he gave it to us and letting it lead us to worship. Paul, the apostle Paul, does better than Bart. 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, place your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything that's good that you enjoy has been provided to you by God so that you would enjoy it and in enjoying it to the fullest would raise it up to God in worship. And that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 6. Says he sought the Lord, he's gazed on his beauty, and when he does, verse 6 says, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Wonder at God's beauty leads to the worship of his glory. When you perceive God's beauty, you can worship him in his glory. 
And that's the purpose of beauty. And we should prioritize the pursuit of beauty because it leads us to worship the Lord. So lastly, how are we to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? How do we do it? We know that it should be our priority, and now we know what the purpose of every little beauty is. So how do we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? If we're going to enjoy God, we need to know how to gaze upon his beauty. And that's a difficult thing to do when you think about it. Because God is, as Colossians 1 says, the invisible God. How do you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord if he's invisible? One of the ways the Bible describes of gazing on the beauty of the Lord is to recognize his beauty in creation. In Genesis 1, the Bible tells us that God created everything that was. And at the end of every day that he created, he said it was good. And the word that's used there for good is also the same word that's used for beautiful. It's not just morally good. It's not just pure. It's beautiful. In creation, it's as if God was an artist and he steps back from his easel and he declares it good. He says, beautiful. Day two, he's done. Steps back, beautiful. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his work. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they are heard. Isaiah 6.3 says, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. And so how do the heavens speak? How is the earth full of his glory? And I think it works well if we think of it this way, that God's beauty in creation is like a mirror. I wanted to bring a mirror up here, but I couldn't find one. It's a, a mirror is an accurate reflection, but it has limitations, right? It's only two-dimensional. If I were to hold a mirror up here um, and you looked at yourself in it, we could tell a lot about you from your reflection, right? We could tell kind of what you looked like. We could tell your skin color. We could tell whether you were happy or sad, but we wouldn't know everything about you. We could see what you look like for sure, sort of the outline, but we wouldn't know everything because the mirror is two-dimensional. You're a three-dimensional person. The reflection in the mirror would be much smaller than you actually are because it's only the size of the mirror. You would weigh a lot less in your reflection than you do in real life. You have more gravitas than the mirror can project, and it can't tell me anything about what's going on internally, you know, whether that coffee's sitting right or not. Mirror can't tell me that. Mirror can't tell me what your likes and dislikes are. Mirror can't tell me about your family history or your personality or your Enneagram score. And on and on it goes. The mirror gives us a general outline, but there's so much more to you than the mirror can give. And God shouts through creation every day, the Psalms say. He's saying, I'm here. This is what I'm like. Here's my power. Here's my wisdom. Here's my beauty. But he's so much more than what creation can tell us. That's why Psalm 27 tells us that we see beauty of the Lord most assuredly, most pointedly, most focused. In verse 4, it says, in his temple. David wants to be in the temple, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. But why the temple? We've got to ask why. In the Old Testament, the temple is where you experience God's presence, right? 
All throughout the Old Testament, we see God's beauty on full display when people went to the temple because that's where sacrifice was made. Forgiveness of sins was found in the temple. It's where God lived. It's where he chose to reveal himself to his people. And in, you get to the New Testament, and Jesus in John chapter 2, he's messing with some Pharisees, and he says that there's going to be a day when this temple is destroyed, and I'm going to rebuild this thing in three days. And they laugh at him. They joke, hey, it's been 40 years. It's been 40 plus years, this temple. No, no chance. Jesus says, I'm going to build it in three days. And what Jesus is doing here and what the Bible's saying all along is that the beauty of God and the presence of God is no longer going to be found in a temple. The beauty and the presence of God is going to be found in Christ. He's going to replace the temple. He's not the place, but the person now where the beauty of God is going to be most fully displayed. So if we're going to gaze on God's beauty in the temple, and Jesus has replaced the temple, you see where I'm going with this, right? How do we gaze upon the beauty of Jesus today? Here's some quick things. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus wasn't a beautiful man. So if we're going to gaze upon his beauty, it has nothing to do with what he looked like. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, Isaiah 53 says. So the beauty of Jesus has to be something more than what the natural eye can see. And so I'm going to give you a few things. How can we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord first? Jesus is beautiful as the perfect image of God. Jesus is beautiful as the perfect image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So all of us enjoy sort of a secondary beauty in that we were created in the image of God, right? So all of us, like a mirror, reflect God's glory, his beauty. We have personality. We can enjoy, you know, relationships. We have a spiritual nature. We have a mind. But Christ is not in the image of God. He is the image of God. We are pictures of what is like. Jesus is what God is like. It's the difference between seeing a picture of the Grand Canyon and standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon. He is fully God, fully man. We can't see or relate to an invisible God, but in Jesus we see a seeable, touchable, hearable, understandable image of God. God in the flesh. He is beautiful as the exact image of God. So that's where we start. Secondly, Jesus is beautiful as the beauty to which all other beauties point. And this is really super practical, super application right here. Imagine if all you saw your whole life was the moon. You'd think the moon was awesome. I mean, the moon is awesome. But if that's all you saw, you didn't, had never seen the sun, you'd think, wow, that light in the sky is incredible until you see the sun and you recognize whoa okay I get it. that's reflection that is blazing glory that little moon is, is is cool in its own right but it is no sun or think of the Mona Lisa worth over a billion dollars they say what's the Mona Lisa attribute to is it a tribute to a woman with a smirk on her face? 
No. It's a tribute to da Vinci's beautiful mind and his ability. Every atom and galaxy of the universe is a beautiful tribute to the glorious creativity and power of God. Okay? Every little beauty points to Jesus as the greater beauty. How did I get there? Colossians chapter 1. God made the universe that way. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. For in Him, in Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And we say, okay, why? Paul says, so that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Or that Jesus might have the supremacy. He says, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says, For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. That means that we can enjoy God in every good and beautiful thing. Imagine every good and beautiful thing in your life, whether that's a cup of coffee, I don't know what it is for you, a painting, uh, you know, the smell of freshly cut grass. You could go on and on. We could be here all day talking about all the beautiful things in life. I want you to imagine those things. You're going to have to imagine this with me. Imagine those things having a little string attached to them. And the string just extends into the heaven, above the clouds, all the way up to the giver of that good gift. So the hot cup of coffee speaks of Jesus. The big belly laugh speaks of Jesus. The mountain range, the fireworks show, they all speak of Jesus. Beauty is a gift to be enjoyed, you see, but it's also a guide to lead you up to the worship of Christ because he is the beauty of which all other beauties speak. And third, Jesus is beautiful as the full expression of God's perfection. He is the full expression. When you look to Jesus, you get the full picture of God. He has compassion for the broken. If you're hurting in your pain and suffering, or you know someone who is, you can look to Jesus and see a man who touched lepers, who forgave prostitutes, who heard the cry of the sick and the lame and the destitute, who restored his friend who denied him in his greatest hour of need. If you want to know God's heart, you look at Jesus and you see perfect justice and compassion and mercy. Matthew chapter 12 says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You know how brittle a smoldering wick is after you've blown the candle out and it's just sitting there? Jesus is so gentle, he doesn't even break the smoldering wick. If you feel like a smoldering wick, ready to just be broken, look to Jesus. He's gentle. He's kind. And another thing we see is his total self-giving sacrifice, right? That's not news to us, but we need to hear it again and again that the cross is the ultimate statement of God's beauty. It seems strange, but the cross is bloody. It's a mockery. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. It's not where we'd expect to find beauty. Yet it's on the cross that Jesus displayed ultimate love. It's where he gave his life as a ransom for our sin. It's where he perfectly obeyed the will of the Father, even unto death, conquering Satan and sin and death. I've heard it said that 
Jesus is the greatest beauty this world has ever seen, and the cross was the canvas for his masterpiece. Jesus is the greatest beauty this world has ever seen, and the cross was the canvas for his masterpiece. Isn't that beautiful? Do you find that beautiful? And the last thing I think we can relish this morning is that enjoying God in his beauty means seeing Jesus as the ultimate satisfaction for your every longing for beauty. Every craving of your heart, every longing for beauty can only be found in Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us this morning. I brought a picture. Um, I told you I was looking through pictures the other day. I know you can't probably see it, but that's a picture of uh, me and my wife 4,278 days ago. That's what we looked like. I'm not kidding. I counted the days. Uh, the day we were married, 4,278 days ago, I swear I'd, I'd never seen anyone or anything so beautiful, right? What's more beautiful than a bride in her gown? Like, just beauty. Watching her walk down the aisle in that dress, one of the greatest thrills of my life. But a lot can happen in 4,278 days, right? 4,278 days happen. And now, she's much more beautiful to me than she was 4,278 days ago. Over all these years, I've come to see her beauty more clearly. She doesn't wear the same dress. She doesn't walk the aisle. You know, she doesn't bring me coffee, you know, like this in the morning. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. She's seen me at my best. She's seen me at my worst. She's inspired me. She's encouraged me. She's called me out and confronted me in, in love. She's held me. She's prayed for me. Uh, she's, she's given our family children. She's, she's, I could go on and on. All of the capacity that she has for love and her love for me and, and my love for her, even though she was beautiful on her wedding day, I had no idea. 4,278 late days later that I would have that much more capacity to see her in true beauty. I saw her beauty on the wedding day, but now I can gaze on her beauty in so many more ways because we've walked together. Gives me an even deeper appreciation and a thankfulness to God for giving her to me. The same is true when it comes to enjoying God's beauty in Christ. There's a huge difference between knowing him superficially, between gazing on his beauty 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning or walking with him day in, day out in a community of people who are created in his image and who are being conformed to that image, that beautiful image. When we see him as the beautiful son of God, the savior of the world, your savior, to know him in depth and to be captivated by his beauty is to give us more and more reason to worship him, to admire him, and to praise him, to serve him, to love one another, to sacrifice. Let's pray.